photography has evolved from being a way of documenting the world to a way of communicating. I would say there's always been too many photographs in the world, but there's never too many good ones. The way you photograph something and the way you light something should be as beautiful as you can make it. Business, creative, kit and careers. Find out about the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. I'm here today with Sophie Darlington, a BAFTA-winning wildlife filmmaker who's recently concluded a feature film called Penguins for Disney Nature. She's filmed everywhere from the Antarctic to the Serengeti. She's going to tell us more about the unique challenges her job brings. Hi Sophie, it's lovely to meet you. Can you just start off by telling us why it is that you became a wildlife filmmaker? When I was in my late teens, I was working and living in Tanzania and I met a BBC film crew who were uh, passing through and it was that amazing sort of light bulb moment where I was, oh, you can do that as a job. Amazing. So I asked them for a job and they told me to go to film school, uh, which I didn't do. Um, I worked on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles instead. It seemed like a very natural progression. And then I... Um, got a job as a camp manager for Hugo van Lauwick, who was famously married to Jane Goodall. Uh, Jane Goodall was the lady who did all the pioneering chimp work and Hugo filmed her for National Geographic and he took on apprentices. And I became his camp manager and over several years learned how to film in the Serengeti. So resisting the urge to talk more about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you've since fully established yourself as a filmmaker in your own right. So how would you describe your style? I'd like to feel that um, it's a combination of of many things. It's a combination of that alchemy where the light and, and nature come together. I think beauty is is such an incredibly sharp tool and you can make people really feel if you can get them to look at an image and it resonates with them because it's so beautiful. A, a great friend of mine, Richard Moss, an incredibly talented uh, artist and filmmaker, uh, he says beauty is the sharpest tool in the box. And I totally agree with him because I think you can make your point as long as you're telling a story and it's not gratuitous. Um, like anything, every shot has to tell your story. And generally speaking, how long is a shoot for you? Normal shoots, uh, oof, um, when I'm sent off to do a sequence, it's usually anything between three and five weeks. And that will give you a five to eight minute sequence, depending on what you're filming. Um, and that's me on long lens. I'm purely, I'm a long lens camera woman. So that's what I specialize in. And um, then there'll be loads of other elements. It might be Cineflex, it might be some Ronin, there might be um, drone. It's a huge part of wildlife filmmaking and all filmmaking actually today. So, yeah, different elements. But that's obviously so much harder when you, you've got no control over your subjects or lighting, I imagine. So how do you ensure that you do that while you're on a shoot? What are some of the technical aspects that you have to take into consideration? Pretty much every wildlife shoot has exactly the same constraints, which is there will be a moment that you have to cover and it's not enough to have one lens. You have to have a zoom, an ultra zoom that will get you um, the different ranges of shot size because it's no good just having a mid shot. It's not going to carry it. You need to have a point for an editor to come in, to come out, and you need different shot sizes. So you need that big detail. You need the eyes, the paws, whatever it might be, the beak the feathers, I don't know. Um, but you also need that big wide. And so we always use zooms. So depth of field is obviously very important for you creatively. I think it's really important that a person when they're watching, or for me, it's really important when I'm watching wildlife, that you know who you're looking at. And also that 
because you can have these epic scenics, you can kind of get lost in all the details. So for me, um, I tend to use a very um, short depth of field, which is great because with the CN20, you get it. <laughs> um, you, you know, sometimes it's a hair's breadth when the light is low. Um, but it really allows you, if you have a very shallow depth of field, to just be involved in. So, so if I'm looking at the eye of an animal, pin sharp and everything else soft or an animal in a landscape it's that beautiful it's really cinematic and it really kind of puts you there's something really amazingly strong about it um so we made the choice to use um you know very shallow depth of field when possible am i right in saying that it's not always easy to achieve that kind of depth of field not necessarily no i think it's uh, it depends what you're shooting. I, I started off by shooting Super 16 and 35, and you can get a very... It, it's, only, it's, only, it's all about your F-stop or your T-stop, you know? So if you use NDs, um, you, you're going to get a shallow depth of field. And usually, if you're shooting off-speed as well, you're going to need all the light you can, which gives you a shallow depth of field. So everything in wildlife kind of points you towards a shallow depth of field. Uh, but having worked on a few feature films... It, it just feels right. It feels cinematic and it feels like you're kind of honouring whatever you're filming more by giving that shallow depth of field. Sometimes I want to see everything. I want to see, you know, that tree on the horizon to that, you know, animal in the foreground. But if I'm looking at behaviour, I tend to go with, with that. I think you mentioned earlier the CN20 in particular. How well do you think that kind of lens works at those very shallow depth of fields? The CN20 is a beast. It's amazing. I remember laying my hands on it for the first time. And it's it's incredible because it's got 180 rotation. It's like, you know, you've got serious, you know, if you're pulling focus, <laughs> got a cheetah running, you really have to move that barrel. And I don't have a follow focus for some reason. I've always preferred to do it by hand. Um, I, The lens, what you want is you want to be able to, you want very little breathing. What it also does is the minute you kick the extender in, the 1.5, it doesn't lose sharpness. It's still pin sharp. And it's sharp, as I say, all the way. There's there's no chromatic aberration that I could really see. Um, in comparison to all the other lenses that I had used, the, the CN20 kind of delivers that image quality, that real 4K that it demands. You know, you have to you have to have it. And it feels very filmic. But it's it's not an easy lens. It, it, it you know it's quite a it, you know if you're out by the tiniest bit you can correct. But it is very easy to be out, which I love. Um, and, and other times hate <laughs> can be really annoying, especially when you've got the really fast animals. So are you giving yourself much to play with in terms of depth of field as you frame? I would be wide open usually, um, or eight. And if there's a really challenging something and I can push it, like if I've got a cheetah hurtling towards me um, quite fast, I would most probably try and get like 11 or something just to give myself a little bit more of um, depth of field to play with. But sometimes because you're shooting off speed, you don't have, if you're shooting at 90 frames a second, you don't have the opportunity to, it's just not there. So have you never worked with a focus puller? wildlife camera people tend to work on their own. I had no idea there was such a thing as a focus puller until I went and uh, there was an IMAX crew that came through the Serengeti and I was like, what, what, what's going on? And and I watched this guy using the numbers on a lens to pull focus and that's not, I've never ever done that. It's all about feel and um, it can be really easy if you've got something coming towards you at a kind of very regular pace. You're kind of gently pulling focus, and you kind of get a real feel. And you learn a lens. You learn how you, you learn how they act. Um, 
But um, if you've got a bird on water or something and the water is ebbing and, ebbing and flowing, you can be sitting there like, are they going forwards? Are they going backwards? It's, it can be quite tricky. So um, focus puller, who knew? Yeah, I think they're probably quite the luxury. But you have your own focus pulling skills now, presumably. When I first had the CN20, I'd been used to an HG18, another Canon lens, but I knew how that lens worked. I could pull focus on that almost blindfolded. But with this, it was like, oh, hello, whole new ball game. And because it's got such rotation, you really have to learn um, a lens. So, um, and sometimes it, it doesn't happen. Sometimes it goes wrong or the animal goes a different way. It's, it, you know, you're not directing an animal. They're going where they want to go and you're trying to do your best to to follow them. So you've said that beauty is the sharpest tool in the box, but do you have a specific approach to framing when your subjects are running and it's difficult to keep up to them and you're still pursuing that perfect, perfect composition? I I have a sort of a framing default. Um, I get really upset if something visually comes into the frame that shouldn't be there, which is really tricky in wildlife because it happens all the time. I was filming penguins uh, for Disney and there was always one penguin that photobombed that just came in in the wrong place. And it was so frustrating because you'd have the most beautiful frame and suddenly there'd be a, you know, and it and it's not a great, it's almost like um, a disorder. It really upsets me when things come in. But I've learned to um, mainly because producers prod you and get really angry when you cut a shot because it's not working frame-wise. frame, frame wise. So obviously there's very little you can do in, in those instances where it's just not going right. But can you tell us a little bit more about the, the dilemmas that you face in this industry when it comes to getting involved with the animals and what you're seeing? Pretty much everything I've ever done, I would like to feel that... Um, it's, it comes from the school of where I, I came from, which is nature does what nature does, and we're not there to intervene. We're there to record it truthfully and not have any impact on it, which is why, again, I think I like being a long-lens camera woman because you're removed, um, you, you're observing, you're not, you know, you're, you, you kind of that degree of separation almost allows you, you know that you're not influencing the behaviour in any way, and I really like that. I've seen some heartbreaking, heartbreaking things. I've seen a cheetah mother being tossed by a Grant's gazelle. Um, she died. Uh, two days later, her three cubs died. Um, I couldn't intervene. I told the scientists about it because that's their, their job, right? My job is not there to, to get involved. My job is to record it faithfully. So I, I, I think ethically, it's really, it's really clear for all of us. We know what's right, what's wrong. You don't cross the line. You can't. It can be really hard, though, because you can be sitting there watching something happen that you don't want to happen. It must be really difficult to stay emotionally detached in situations like that. Does it ever get to you? I have been known to, um, to shed a tear. Um, do you know what, though? Most of my tears come from frustration and rage at humans, at um, their behaviour around animals. I can't believe that people will pay the money that they pay to go and watch an animal and disregard it so incredibly. And I think phones have been a massive part of that. I think that maybe we're responsible for it slightly as well, you know, because we have the luxury of shooting on amazingly beautiful lenses that bring you right into an animal's world. And when people go out there with their phones, they want that shot. And the only way they're going to get that shot is by breaking every rule in the book of that park or ignoring the animal's well-being. And that makes me really really angry but more really upset I can't cope with it actually I I am dismayed 
increasingly at the behaviour I see around animals and the disregard. Maybe I'm just getting older. <laughs> I guess that's a, an important message for people even who aren't wildlife photographers or cinematographers. Changing the topic back to Kit, what are you typically looking for when you're choosing a lens? When you're choosing a lens, I think the most important thing is that you're, I mean, obviously, image quality, you want it to be, you know, you want it to not have any chromatic aberration, you want it to be uh, pin sharp, you don't want it to breathe, because we do pull focus quite a lot. So if you if, if your lens, you know, if you're changing focal length and um, at, at one shot size, and that focal length, you know, moves, you're in trouble. So you want you know, you want that stability. Um, you want it to be as fast as possible because we want, you know, animals do stuff. They're crepuscular. A lot of them, they do stuff at dawn and at dusk. So you want to be able to use low light situations, although many of the cameras now are really getting better at that. Um, uh, I think that, you know, a bit of stabilisation. I've never used a lens that's stabilised. I, You know, as a long lens camera woman, I believe that would be wonderful. If I could get one, it would be great. Um it must be coming, surely. So at this point in your career, do you think that you're still driven by the same things? Increasingly, as a filmmaker, it becomes more and more important to me to um, to actually, without sounding, you know, too um, worthy, but it really does matter that the films matter. Uh, so um, incre I think... Initially, I was just like, I just want to work and film wildlife because that's what I want to do. And of course, that's still what I want to do. I want to film in the natural world. But I... Wouldn't it be great to make a difference? Wouldn't it be great to inspire people? That would be, that would be an amazing outcome. It sounds really worthy, though, doesn't it? It's true. I don't think it sounds worthy. I think, I think it's important to feel like you've got purpose in the work you do. So... Do you have any advice for people who maybe want to move into wildlife filmmaking? I, I get emailed pretty much every day asking about how do I get into this business, what I think you can do, and the real advantage to now is there are these so many different platforms. You can get your work out there and you can shoot really affordably on great kit um, without spending, you know, the, the CN20 is a beautiful lens, but, you know, it is not a... It, it, it costs what it's worth, but it is not cheap. But there are equivalents that you can get out there and film um, and make amazing, amazing content. The secret is the story, because that's what it always comes back to. My advice would be, you know, get out there. That's how you're going to tell the story, is by being out there and being in it. Not sitting at home watching YouTube videos. That ain't going to do it for you. Controversial. <laughs> I think that we are pretty much out of time. So thank you very much. Um, but just to wrap up, one more question. What would you say is the hardest issue to overcome in wildlife videography? If you're looking at it technically from a camera point of view, what you want is to be able to get the breadth of that story. If I was choosing a kit, I would make sure I chose a really good zoom because I would want to be able to... I wouldn't want the lens to dictate to me what my shot size was. I would want to choose the focal length and the speed. Um, when I was starting, I remember speaking to an amazing wildlife cameraman 
Dougie. And Dougie said to me, um, I said, should I buy a camera? Should I buy, what should I, you know, what do I do? And it was, a, it's, it still is a massive investment. And he said, well, if you're getting work without cameras, um, what I'd say is buy a good bit of glass. And I think that still continues to this day. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Shutter Stories, you can rate and subscribe in the episode's listing. To find more stories and to find us on social, you can click on the links in the episode's description.